Have you ever turned to Yelp? And do you trust their recommendations? I'm Barbara Dundon for 20 by 70, and I'm here at the Allens Lane train station on a quiet weekday afternoon. Let's hear what people here have to say. I've heard of Yelp. Um, oh gosh, is it a restaurant review? Yes, 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 yes. I know it. I know it. I do. Have you used it before? I haven't, but my kids have. And there are two millennials, um, and, and the older one is working so she can pay for her own Yelp visits now. Yes, her own restaurants. Do you use Yelp? Uh, not too much. Sometimes I get some reviews on it, yeah. When you use it, do you trust it? Uh, I take it with a grain of salt. But <laughs> have you ever used it? Yes, I have. What do you use it for? I use it if I'm in an unknown area to me and I'm looking for a possibly a place to eat, a review of a place to eat, or a place to hear music, or something I'm not familiar with, but I'm looking to seek in a new neighborhood. So it sounds like you find it reliable. I do. I have a few sources I use, but I do turn to Yelp. I have it as an app on my phone. So, Well, there you have it. A few minutes of doing unto Yelp as it does unto others. It's been fun, but the train to Center City is here, so I'm going to hand things off to the trusty host of 20 by 70, Chris Satulo. Thanks, Barbara. This is Chris Satulo, your host of 20 by 70, the podcast for people who expect more from Philadelphia. I'm sitting on this crisp spring day in our podcast home at the Wexler Studio inside Kelly Ryder's house on the Penn campus. You might say this episode of 20 by 70 is brought to you by the words crowdsourcing, platform, and disruption. Yelp, which Barbara Dundon just chatted to folks about, is of course a crowdsourcing platform that disrupted the world of restaurants a few years ago. We're going to look today at two examples of how crowdsourcing platforms bid to upset the settled arrangement of politics. And don't know about you, but I'd say both around Philadelphia and in the capital cities of Harrisburg and Washington, D.C., those fixed habits could do with some disruption. I'm joined in the studio by uh, our CEO and my co-host, David Thornburg, and he is ready to interview a guest that he's known for a long time, back since the University of Pennsylvania days, T.J. Hurst, who is the head of what's known as a Yelp for Politics, Jefferson's List. Take it away, David. Thanks, Chris. Yep. Uh T.J. and I go back to when he was a student at uh, the Fells Institute of Government, and I was running that joint, which is a, a stone's throw from here from our studio over at Kelly Ryder's house. Uh, the Wexler studio, we might hasten The, the Wexler studio, exactly. <laughs> and T.J., as you said, is, is co-founder of, I think, a really interesting new uh, startup called Jefferson's List that, that could threaten, in a Trumpian-like fashion, to uh, topple the the political order, not just in Philadelphia, but uh, around the country. So, TJ, thanks for being here. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me, Chris, as well. So, so tell us what's the what's the deal with Jefferson's List? What are you What are you trying to do? What's the conventional wisdom that you're trying to upset and improve? Yeah, I'd start off by by just saying, you know, picture in your head if you decided to run for office. Like we have judicial races right now in Philadelphia, a million of them, I think, something like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And each one of those people has to raise money and then deploy professionals to help them get elected. And our question is, there are lots of platforms out there for people to get money. Uh, 
you know, fundraisers, lots of this traditional capital. But then when they have to deploy it, they often are in the dark about where to go. And so as we say, you know, this is a $14 billion a year industry based on I know a guy. Yeah, so if I'm running for judge, I decide to take the plunge, raise some money. I'm likely to just right now start asking people about who's the right guy. It usually is a guy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's certainly a male-dominated profession, which I will I will say you would I get calls every week of people saying, I want to run for office. Who do, who do I get to run my campaign? And I can tell you three or four people in the city that I know, that I trust, uh, that I think you know would do a decent job, but I don't have perfect information around that. But we ac- actually do have something pretty close to perfect information, and that's due to the campaign finance reports, to which at this point, people are only looking at the money coming into politics, that $14 billion. But we're saying we can analyze the question of, once the candidates get this money, where is it going out to and who's deploying it effectively? And therefore, who would be a good match to help you get elected? Interesting. So you're basically trying to gather this dispersed data from around the country and put it in the hands of uh, candidates uh, and maybe their uh, their consultants to help them weed out the kind of the the real deal from the pretender, from the flim-flam artist, it's kind of like a, um, I mean, I know we've talked about this before, kind of like the, the money ball play that Michael Lewis wrote about. Absolutely. So there's definitely an analytical side to this as well, which is to say, one, not only who is in the industry, but taking that and analyzing some of the output that we have around um, what types of communication are most effective. We know how much how much persuasion a point of TV should be worth. We know how much a door knock should be worth in, in persuading people to, to come out and vote. And then analyzing how people are using their resources. And then at the end, how many votes did they get, which is also public information yeah. that we have, to to look back at the effectiveness of particular consultants. And I, I, w- I would just, just add that uh, on any individual races is a tough thing to do, but many consultants are taking five or six races a year. And over a longitudinal time, you can really start to suss out what the value add of a particular consultant is over the course of time. So you've got the power of large numbers. You could even say the wisdom of crowds uh, working for you because you can collect all that data. I mean, I, I assume right now if I'm trying to sell my wares to you as a campaign consultant, I'll tell you something about my one lost record. So what's wrong with that right now? I mean, isn't that a decent indicator of how good I am? It is it is a terrible indicator of how good you are. Harumph. <laughs> because most, most races aren't won or lost based on the consultant if, if they do the status quo, right? So a lot of races, you know, aren't going to be won or lost based on a particular method. The demographics of particular races, name recognition of incumbents, um, the amount of money you have in general is what's going to determine that. But at the margins, say on a presidential election where you're losing by a few thousand votes in one or two particular states, your tactics as a consultant, as an operative absolutely have the ability to make a difference in in tight races. Yeah. So I guess to state the obvious, if I had an impressive one loss record, but the only races I'd ever worked on were basically walkovers uh, in non-competitive districts, then obviously I'm going to have a better one loss record 
than somebody who took on more contested races, you know, where the margins weren't so so straightforward. Absolutely. And what I would say is, so right now we're sitting in the second congressional district of Pennsylvania. There's a thing called the Cook Political Report, which benchmarks what a generic Democrat and a generic Republican, what the outcome of any race should be in any particular district. So this, this district we're sitting in is plus 20 Democratic, the second most Democratic district in the entire, of all 435 in the country. And if if a Republican only loses by 15 points, then they actually did pretty well You're in like this district. Like you beat district. the spread, You beat the spread. So we're trying to figure out whether, that's a great analogy, whether or not people are beating the spread versus whether they're winning or losing. Yeah. So you and your co-founder, Dan Siegel, were featured in a, a, a nice Sunday Inquirer article a couple weeks ago. Uh, and the headline there was that with the disruptive surprise of the Trump election, all of a sudden people were paying attention to your startup that hadn't paid attention before. Is that for real? Absolutely. <laughs> what's going on? Yeah, I mean, no, what are no. what are the investors? What are the smart people out there? What are they What are they uh, saying to you? Yeah, I, I think that you know there is conventional wisdom pretty early on in this process that anybody with a real brain can tell the difference between who is. Um, Who's, you know, spinning BS and who and, and who are the, the real people doing this work? However, I, I think many people learned the fallacy of that during last year's presidential election, which was to say that many people believe the group think that Hillary Clinton was an ine inevitability to win. Yeah. People were telling us, you know, I understand because... I uh, I read 538. I I've seen the analysis. I'll, I'll plead guilty to all of that. I think <laughs> most of us will. I, I will. I will as well. But um, the numbers. I mean, it ended up. You know, the model that the Clinton campaign was built on was wrong, and because of that, they weren't. Uh, they were getting out the wrong people to vote. They were concentrating on the wrong areas, and the narrative that she was inevitable. Uh, was a trap that a lot of people fell into. Yeah. So talk about uh, your, your plans to grow the company uh, and conquer the political world. How's it coming? What, uh, what positive signals are you getting? What questions are you getting? One thing I say that, you know, we've worked on dozens of campaigns between the two of us, Dan and I, and every campaign is a startup. So we, we've been through this process a number of times. The difference that I'm learning now as a, you know, a small business owner of a tech company is that we're trying to build for sustainability versus running all out on something that has a terminal date on it yeah. because you win or lose at the end of election. There's always an exit strategy in an election. <laughs> it's <laughs> called election day. Yeah. <laughs> for whether you win or lose. So that's been an adjustment, I, I would say, for me, learning how, how to, to build a business this way. Um, but we're sort of doing going through the motions of raising money, building a site, convincing both operatives and potential candidates that this is a worthy uh, this is a worthy platform to be on and really just trying to collect the data and analyze it in a way that's going to be useful for our end consumers. Yeah, you've got a huge data gathering challenge in front of you, I would I would think. Absolutely, because all the data are publicly available, but they're in lots of different places. Right. So the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, has the federal list available, but that's only 536 elections 
every year. So you're so you're it's just the 435 for Congress, the 100 senators, and the presidential uh, races. However, you know there are over 7,000 state reps around the country, the 50 gubernatorial races, on down to, you know, the proverbial dog catcher, not to mention the amount of money being spent in campaigns that around ballot initiatives that don't uh, have anything to do with a particular yeah. candidate. It's just particularly in a place like California is, is kind of run rampant. So uh, it, it seems clear that you're creating some public good here, but you're in the interest of creating private good as well, that somebody uh, pays you for a basket of services. So how's the business model work? How does money change hands and for, and for what? Yeah, so in the, in the tech industry, we're, we're doing what they call a SaaS model, uh, which stands for software as a service. And essentially, consultants would buy into this platform to spruce up their profiles in order for, for candidates to come to it and distinguish them from, you know, their competitor. And so, so people can see what, what makes you particularly good at your, at your field. And we, we think that it's important for it to remain free for the candidates, for journalists, for academics to be able to come and, and, see who's in this industry already. And, and I think that, that the, the demand side is what we're calling the, the candidates and political junkies and everyone else who would be interested in this. It's important to keep that side free because you, you want it to be as robust as possible so that the consultants know that before they, before they get hired, their potential candidates are are checking them out right. on Jefferson's list. So this is more in the analogy department. This is more Angie's list than Craig's list. I would say, I would say it's an open table. Okay. If, <laughs> if, you're, if you're familiar with open table, because okay. it's free for me to to yeah. go on and make a reservation. I got but it. every time I make a reservation, you should know that uh, open table is or that your particular restaurant is paying open table right. to uh, for for you coming to that restaurant. All right. Uh, T.J. Hurst, co-founder of Jefferson's List, potentially really interesting, disruptive uh, play here in the political world. Thanks for being with us. Thank you all for having me. Well, David, smart young man you worked with back in your Fells days. Yeah, I unless I miss my bet, I think they're on to something because there's so much money pouring into politics. And as T.J. says, largely right now, you like, ask who the guy is and you end up with a guy could be your you know uncle could be some fella that just shows up and uh, feels like the market needs a little more information and discipline so right there's a couple of key words um, that we've come to know very well since the tech revolutions are rattling around in there we mentioned one of them crowdsourcing clearly data and data science are very important to what tj is doing with jefferson list and it's the power of platform. He's creating a platform that gathers a crowd that enables him, as he just discussed, to have a business model. Yep. And, uh, you know, the thought is maybe it will disrupt the fairly um, small, cozy, and a uh, little bit incestuous world of political consulting. So more generally speaking, though, um, we've seen um, a lot of disruption on the political scene in the last few months. And... It sort of raises in mind the question of whether disruption is always uniformly a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> this is a theme for this podcast, but we don't want to lead people to think that 
just knocking over all the blocks and making a mess is necessarily a great thing. Yeah. Well, I, I see the specter of President Trump looming over the studio. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's clearly the most disruptive uh, election uh, result in my lifetime, maybe in the history of the United States. For ill or for good. Uh, remains to be seen. Remains but... to be seen. Although, as we have pointed out, this surge of uh, kind of populist activity and you know, citizens with pitchforks is really extraordinary. And, uh, you know, there's some silver lining uh, from all that. But, you know, disruption is just a phenomenon, a tool Mm -hmm. for good or for ill. Uh, And, you know, I think TJ's trying to play a positive role as it creates some public value as well as makes some money in the process. And similarly, um, crowdsourcing, though, clearly the power and the value that has been shown over and over again um, through various platforms that have developed – It's still true, and this was well laid out in the famous book, The Wisdom of Crowds. Um, Crowds are not necessarily smart or wise. (laughs) You know, it it takes a certain kind of crowd um, in the sort of contrary direction. Essentially, the phenomenon of fake news that we've seen is sort of, it's, you know, basically that's crowdsourcing, that's sharing, um, you know, peer-to-peer sharing of information. But if it starts out with bad information, what you've done is is essentially enabled the more rapid spread and the broader spread of bad information. So not all disruption is great. Not all crowds are wise. But when um, we come back to this Philadelphia political scene, we're looking at a scene that maybe authentically – is in dire need of disruption based on recent events and yeah. uh, decades worth of yeah. events. I, I was uh, interviewed for an article in Vice magazine the other day, which I read and was mm. a, a litany of uh, our recent political history, Seth Williams' corruption, Chaka Fatah corruption, on and on and on and on. I mean, it was a lot more negative than I anticipated, but basically dredged up all of the crazy, corrupt, Leslie Acosta, mm-hmm. you know, all this stuff that's been going on. Well, they on. had plenty of grist for their mill. A lot of grist for the mill. But I, I did say one of the you know, challenges right now is that the political machine is old and it's gray and tired, but it's still there. So for the time being, at least I'm all for productive disruption that, that brings new folks into the process and uh, a little creative tension, a little more drama. It, it gets more uh, voters engaged because um, I think it's time. It's overdue. And amazingly enough, you just set us up for our next segment. So tell us a little <laughs> bit about who you'll be talking to next. Isn't that something? I, I'm going to be talking in a sec to uh, Chris Rabb, who is a newly minted uh, member of the state house from northwest Philadelphia. He's actually my state uh, rep. He's got an interesting story to tell about how he was able to beat the endorsed candidate of the vaunted Northwest machine, and uh, to take that seat as an independent Democrat. And uh, it's only been in office for a couple of months, but uh, it's a really interesting story so far as the sort of man against the machine. Right. And that's, uh, for those who don't know, Northwest Democratic Politics, the Northwest Coalition, has been one of the very exemplars of essentially kind of dynastic succession. You play your role in the coalition, you're you're a good foot soldier, then eventually you're rewarded with office. I've said it's the only realm of society these days where succession planning still exists, (laughs) unfortunately. All right. Well, let's get to talking with this new disruptor from Northwest Philadelphia.
The 20 by 70 podcast is thrilled to be sponsored by Young Involved Philadelphia. Young Involved Philadelphia, known by its fans as YIP, builds relationships and increases civic engagement to empower and connect young Philadelphians. YIP's upcoming events include a Get Involved Happy Hour on Thursday, April 6th at 6.30 at the Bainbridge Street Barrel House and coming up a little later in the month on April 25th, they're hosting a District Attorney Candidates Forum and Convention on Criminal Justice Reform in Philadelphia. So look forward to that. Again, Young Involved Philadelphia doing great work in our city. So once again, our key words for this episode of 20 by 70 are crowdsourcing, platform, and disruption. And our next guest used a new crowdsourcing platform for campaign fundraising to disrupt the usual political order inside Philadelphia and pull off one of the biggest political upsets of 2016, at least around here. So again, here's David Thornburg with our next guest. So we're joined now uh, by Representative Chris Rabb, who is actually my uh, representative to the House from Northwest Philadelphia. Thanks for being with us today, Representative Rabb. My pleasure. So I began my day with you at my breakfast table uh, about 6 o'clock this morning. I was flipping through my Facebook feed and came across an entry from CrowdPack, which is a I think a disruptive bit of software that allows candidates to uh, kind of get started and uh, maybe buck the trend. So let's let's start off by telling the story of CrowdPack and how that helped you get into this this house race and ultimately win it. Sure, sure. Well, in early 2015, my former state representative decided to run for city council to succeed her mentor, Marion Tasco, and that was Sherelle Parker. And when Sherelle Parker ran that race, it was almost certain that she would, it was certain that she would win and also therefore vacate her seat in Harrisburg. And as you know about Philly politics, people normally stay in office until they die. <laughs> That's generally uh, the exit strategy, either yes, that or going you know. to jail. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, she took that third path. And it opened up a very rare open seat. Um, and I've been living in the 200th legislative district for 15 years. This is where I raised my kids. This is home. And I really anticipated someone who, that there would be multiple candidates who'd want to run and who were um, highly qualified to do so. The 200th legislative district, of course, represents all of Chestnut Hill, all of Mount Airy, and a part of West Oak Lane. And it's 65,000 folks. Um, and it also has the highest number of registered Democrats of any district in the entire state. And it also boasts the first, second, and third highest voter turnout wards um, in, in the city, which is the, the 9th, the 50th, and the 22nd. So that so sounds like a setup for uh, kind of a smooth, short path for an endorsed Democratic candidate. You would think so, yes. And the reason it would be easy to make that assumption is because the prior five state legislators, uh, the state reps in particular, all got there through special election. So they all were nominated by the party, and they went on to win the Democratic primary. 
And for those who stayed for multiple terms, there's really little to no competition. In other words, there were no viable challengers to speak of um, over the course of 33 years. So when I decided to run, there was a lot of, uh, I imagine, joking at my expense because who is this guy who was born and raised in Chicago, who's not really affiliated with any of the established players or fiefdoms in Northwest or anywhere else? Someone nominated me on a website I'd never heard of called CrowdPack, and it basically was Kickstarter for candidates, really outsider, first-time candidates, so that they could raise money before they formally filed as a candidate, so that if um, they were able to raise money to essentially test how supportive their base would be, that money could be transferred to their official campaign account once they filed. And if for whatever reason the candidate decided not to run, all that money would be refunded in full to their supporters. So this was long before the election. Maybe you were thinking about it in broad strokes, but... Yes. So this really... It was the summer of 2015. Summer of 2015. So this was, you know, well before the March 15th special election, which I didn't even know would exist. We had believed and certainly hoped that the special election would happen on the same day as the Democratic primary, which would be fairly confusing to the average voter, but also a lot more efficient and affordable so taxpayers wouldn't have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars um, because of political gamesmanship in in Harrisburg. Um, The person who decides when a special election is, is actually the Speaker of the House. And the Speaker of the House is currently a Republican because they're in the majority. And uh, they thought it best to have a special election 40 days before primary to suit their purposes, irrespective of the cost to Philadelphia. Well, I know you've got a special interest in special elections. We'll talk about that in a sec. But just to kind of uh, close the loop on on CrowdPack, Mm -hmm. so how much was pledged to you through CrowdPack back uh, summer of uh, 15? Well, it was interesting. I was able to raise around I think around $10,000 from about three Facebook posts through CrowdPack, hmm. which was which just shocked me. Um, obviously, I needed to raise a lot more than that, but it took so little effort to raise that much money before I'd even thrown my hat into the ring. It tested the waters, and it proved to me that the, the well was was deep enough in terms of financial support for people in and beyond the area to um, – to be there for me, right. to, to run for an office that they thought I would do quite well in if I won. And so that was one of three preconditions. Uh, the first, of course, was getting the support of, of my base in the Ninth Ward from my fellow Democratic committee people I'd served with for a long time. The second one was uh, making sure that I looked at the numbers. I looked at um, all the previous relevant election results to see how not just me, but any viable candidate could win against the opponent I was up against. Yep. And, and, and I had to make sure that I didn't need 117% of folks from my backyard <laughs> to win. The math had to work. And yep. once I realized the math could work, and I still realized how hard it was, I then went to uh, the third precondition was that I could raise enough money from independent sources, because that's really important, too, because the usual suspects regardless of their politics, regardless of their agendas, tend to support folks who are either incumbents or, or those who are anointed by other incumbents. Yeah. And I was not the anointed one. Yeah. And as a result, I raised money from friends, family, 
neighbors, you name it. That's great. So let's fast forward to the election. You won. Uh, it was a surprise. I remember being surprised. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm sure you yeah. were surprised in a positive way. Um, I was. I was surprised that my margin of victory was so significant. I won by seven points in a yeah. three-person race. So talk about this uh, special election uh, legislation, then we'll let you go. Well, one of the most visceral responses I got from things I said on the campaign trail was, do you think it's fair or right that two people behind closed doors decided what was best for 39,000 registered Democrats? And their first, their response was this quizzical uh, look. I'm like, that's right. They're three war leaders who decide um, who the nominee for special election will be for 39,000 registered Democrats. Do you think that's fair? But that's the way we always do this in Philadelphia. <laughs> well, that, that, is, that is equally true. That does not mean that it is right or transparent or good or healthy or inclusive. And so the unanimous response was, that's awful. That shouldn't be like that. And originally, the bylaws for the Democratic City Committee said it's the majority of elected Democratic committee people that decide that. But those bylaws were amended somehow the not-so-distant uh, past, instead of they took it from the committee people and they put it all the power to the ward leaders. How about that? So the special elections reform bill that I've proposed will basically set up some interim steps before the party can nominate a candidate for that, that vacancy. And it's essentially they have to file as a candidate and pay a fee. They have to participate in a public, publicly held meeting put on by the party uh, where you have a, a, a quorum of, of people from that uh, party officials who are represented there. And you have the opportunity to create a video, much like Philly Cam did this last election yep. cycle with anyone who was running in a contested race could do a free video. They would pay, you know, they would cover all the production costs and, and you know, uh, promote it aggressively online. And, and if you didn't want to do a video for whatever crazy reason, you could opt out and just let the public know you refuse to do it. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty, much, uh, that's pretty much what I suggested. It still gives the Democratic Party or the Republican Party all the rights and privileges of choosing their nominee. And the last thing is, if you are uh, a state legislator and you are convicted of a felony, you have to pay a $100,000 fine. Basically, you have to pay for the special election that you cause from your malfeasance. Well, that could easily get us into a discussion of a certain special election uh, that happened just a week ago in the 197th, but maybe we'll save that for uh, another time. It sounds like you're very much aware of the that whole situation. But I am indeed. That yeah. inspired it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I wish you well on that, and I know uh, we're going to be taking a look at that. And, uh, again, editorial comment, Lord knows uh, that there, there's lots of work to do in Harrisburg. So. Appreciate your being with us and uh, look forward to seeing you around the neighborhood. My pleasure. Thank you. See ya. So that's it. Our Disruptors episode of 20 by 70, the podcast for people expect more out of Philadelphia. And since we've been talking about crowdsourcing, here's a disruptive idea. Um, We're wondering whether we've got the right name for this podcast, which is, of course, 20 by 70. So we're asking you, if you've got a better name for this little exercise in radio exhortation and analysis, let us know. Go on to SoundCloud, where you can find the podcast, and type it in the comments under this episode. 
Now, time to offer some thanks. Uh, first and foremost, as always, thanks to the good people of Kelly Writers House who have generously agreed to let us use the Wexler Studio as our home. We're grateful for that. And we're grateful to you for listening. As I mentioned, you can find old episodes of 20 by 70 on either SoundCloud, iTunes, or any platform really where fine podcasts are purveyed. Thanks also to our guest, T.J. Hurst of Jefferson's List and Representative Chris Robb, Democrat from Chestnut Hill. And as always, thanks to our intrepid producer, Barbara Dundon, who does all the heavy lifting while I just flap my gums here in the Wexler studio. Praise and gratitude, as always, the 70s hit Hachu, David Thornburg, Philadelphia's Civic Yoda. So now it's time to wrap up this episode of 20 by 70, but again, that last point and the main point. Expect more Philadelphia. <laughs>